All God's people said, amen. We come to church to have church. I guess if I was a more experienced pastor, I would, I don't know. I don't feel like I should preach sometimes. Like, I just don't know what to do. Um, But I, I, I just, sometimes, sometimes we just, we just need to talk to God a little bit and, and kind of just put a, put a pause on the old stopwatch, <laughs> keeping track of when's eight o'clock going to hit and we got to say the last. Sometimes we just need to put park, put it in park and uh, just sit here a little bit. Be still and know that I am God. And that's why we come. That's why we come to don't manufacture moments. No one sat in their office today and said at approximately 7.16, we're going to have a spontaneous altar call. Nobody does that. No one thinks through that. I had no idea what the order of service was. Sometimes God just wants to be God to His church in a very special way, a very real way, and He knows the needs that are represented every single week. And so, just don't miss church. Because you're going to need, you're going to need it. And we need each other. We need these moments. We need songs like Blessed Assurance. <laughs> Got to get the devil out of the, out of the sound system. <laughs> if you're wondering what that is, we have researched that and there's absolutely zero we can do about it. It's when you got big truck drivers driving by and we get interference with the frequencies. So if you're wondering what that is, it's really not a sound man problem. It's, um, and I'm not going to say it's a trucker problem because they contribute to putting food on our tables. They're good people. Um, but it just is one of those things. Nonetheless, let's move on. That's God's signal of saying, let's get on with the service. John chapter one, turn there in your Bible. John chapter one. I want to say thank you to a couple men in our church uh, who do so many things behind the scenes. I just happened to notice one of them today. And that's Brother Mark West and Dwayne DeVellin, uh, who took care of mowing this entire field. Unless uh, you didn't know, we bought the entire thing. And that means we got to take care of it, unfortunately. And we, uh, we put out some fillers as to how much that was going to cost to mow, and it was crazy. Um, and then I, I come on the property and see that these guys got a mower and went to work on it. Um, didn't ask them. Um, they won't let me pay them, I guarantee you. Um, the most I think I can get out of them is let me maintenance the mower, because if Dwayne's on it, it's going to get broke. Um, so just let me maintenance it at least. Um, but I, it's, it's everything from cleaning carpets, um, to little maintenance jobs to mowing and brother Mark's going to probably do some dirt work to fill these major holes out there. It's just guys like that. I'm really thankful for you, man. I really am. I, I know you don't want me to do this, but every once in a while, if I catch you doing it, I'm going to make a big deal about it because I, I like that kind of stuff. Thank you for your heart for the Lord. One of the gifts of God to every human being, I believe, is the gift of a personality. I know some of you know some personalities and you're thinking that's not a gift from God. (laughs) There are some parts about there are some personalities that you like and some that you just aren't very fond of. Right. Um, But everyone in here does have a personality and it is a gift from God. When it comes to your personality, everyone has one, and each personality has its strengths 
and its weaknesses. In fact, uh, they say that when it comes to your personality, oftentimes your strength is usually your weakness. For instance, on tests that I've taken, they've told me that a strength of my personality is passion. That's probably true. I don't have to manufacture enthusiasm or, or build up some type of inward passion for something I believe in. I mean, I ate a brookie uh, before I came in here and I'm telling you, you need to go buy one. Like it, that kind of, it just comes out of me. When I believe in something, I'm going to tell you about it. Um, that's a strength for me. But guess what gets me in the most trouble? My passion. Not eating a brookie, no. <laughs> passion has a way of making somebody a good coach, uh, a good leader, uh, maybe a good preacher, communicator, salesman, a vision caster. But if that passion is left untempered and outside of the control of the Holy Spirit, it leads to massive failure and embarrassment and, and hurt. We've talked about three disciples so far that have, that have had a passionate personality. Peter. And then the sons of thunder, James and John, all three of these guys had to be molded by Christ to the point where their, their passionate personalities could be used for the righteousness instead of being hurtful to the cause of Christ. But tonight, we're not going to study a disciple that had a passionate personality. We're going to study a disciple that had an analytical personality. His name's Philip. How many in here are analytical by nature? Raise your hand if you're, if you're analytical by nature. If you're not raising your hand, you're thinking, I wonder if I am analytical. You're probably analytical by nature. Uh, maybe you like to have all the data before you make a decision. Maybe you're more of a processor than a reactor. Uh, you might have a prove-it mindset, meaning you want to hear the underlining reason behind decisions before you get on board. If you understand it, you'll be all for it. But you can't be all for it till you understand it. Every team, every organization, every church needs an analytical personality around the table. I mean, this can be an incredibly strong asset to a team, to a marriage, to a church. However, just like with a passionate personality, an analytical mind can be a strength and a weakness. Because there's this condition that analytical people can suffer from called analysis paralysis. This is where they overthink decisions and they can't move forward. And that's when an analytical personality turns into a weakness and drives us passionate people crazy. Can I get an amen? Thank you, Dad. That's why we work so well together. We made really stupid decisions sometimes, but we worked well together. And the decisions were really quick. I say, I'll have to say this. Philip had this tendency. Watch here. He was called by God, not just to salvation, but to discipleship and eventually to apostleship. Listen, to answer such a call requires daring, adventurous faith. And that's what Philip had at first. He actually, I'm going to show you, he overcame his analytical personality to forsake all and follow Jesus by faith. But, but over time, his personality got the best of him and he went from this daring faith to kind of a weak faith. I want to show you Philip's daring faith when Jesus first saved him and called him and even his personal evangelism. Then I want to show you three scenarios in the book of John. John is the only gospel that speaks of Philip. I want to show you three scenarios in John's gospel where Philip suffered from analysis paralysis. Look at John chapter 1 verse 43 through 46. It's very interesting. The day following Jesus would go forth into Galilee and findeth Philip and saith unto him, follow me. 
Now, Philip was a Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip findeth Nathanael. This is after Philip apparently followed Jesus. And saith unto him, we have found him, of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said unto him, can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? Look how quickly Philip answered him. He said, come and see. Now, now watch this. The, the ease with which Philip seemingly believed Jesus and followed Jesus and got somebody else to follow Jesus was really remarkable given how analytical he was by nature. His natural tendency when Jesus found him and said, follow me, would have been to hold back, to, to doubt, to ask a lot of questions, to do his research, um, to come back for a few more Sundays until it all clicked in his brain. But he didn't do that. Without hesitation, without reluctance, Philip followed Jesus. And then this adventurous, daring type faith actually followed him all the way to Nathaniel. Because right when he got saved, he ran to Nathaniel, told him about Jesus. And it was actually Nathaniel that was overly analytical. It was Nathaniel that was skeptical and wanted to reason with Philip. And I could just imagine reading him between the lines here. I could just say, Philip, saying, dude, if I'm not asking questions, why are you asking questions? Just come and see. So Philip's journey with Jesus started with daring faith. Faith that overcame its natural tendency to be indecisive and overly analytical and slow to pull the trigger. And listen, church, this is the kind of faith that we are called to have if we're going to follow Jesus. If we're going to help others find and follow Jesus. Daring faith. Adventurous faith, not foolish faith, but faith that is willing to believe in God's word and act upon God's word no, no matter how we feel because we believe God promises a good result. Unfortunately, Philip's faith didn't stay this strong. His analytical personality weakened his adventurous faith. In three ways this happens. I think you're going to find yourself in one of three of these passages. I really do. Go to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. Here's what we learn first. Weak faith limits your ability to believe in the power of God. John chapter 6, the most famous miracle, I think, of Jesus when he fed the five thousands of five loaves and two fishes. Look at John 6 verse 5. When Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come unto him, he saith unto who? Philip. When shall we buy bread that these may eat? Question, why did he single out Philip? Well, the next verse tells us. And this he said to prove him. For he himself knew what he would do. So Philip was, was apparently the apostolic administrator. He was what John MacArthur calls the bean counter of the group. So if Judas was the treasurer in charge of the money, Philip was the guy in charge of the logistics. It fits his personality quite well. He would, he would have been in charge of food supply and traveling arrangements and lodging and events. He was that kind of guy. He was the detailed guy on staff. He was the organizer. He was the one always concerned with protocol. He was the one around the table at staff meeting who is known for saying this. That's a good idea, but I don't think we can do it. I call them momentum killers. So... Jesus, he pointed him out. He was testing him. And he wasn't testing him to find out what he was thinking. Jesus already knew that. He was God. He wasn't even asking Philip for a plan. The verse says that Jesus already knew what he would do. 
Jesus was asking Philip so that Philip would reveal to himself what he was like. He did the same thing to Adam and Eve, did he not? After they sinned, he said this, Adam, where art thou? Not because he didn't know where Adam was, but because he wanted to ask this introspective question to get Adam to see where he really was and what he had done. He did this again in in, in the latter part of Genesis with Jacob. He wrestled Jacob all night long. And when Jacob finally gave up, what did the angel of the Lord, who I believe was God himself, what did he ask Jacob? He said this, Jacob, who are you? He knew who he was. But before he could change him into Israel, which would have been his new name, which means mighty with God, he had to first get Jacob to realize who he was because God can't make you into what he wants you to be until you see what you currently are. Right? And that's what he was doing with Philip here. He was singling Philip out because he knew Philip's heart. And I guarantee you that by the time Jesus asked Philip this question, Philip had already administered a head count of the crowd. He was already analyzing all the possibilities. He had his spreadsheet out. I I should say he was analyzing all the impossibilities. Because he wasn't thinking, what a great opportunity for all these people to hear the gospel. No, he was thinking, we don't have the food for all these people. And if they ask for food, which is why I know they're really here, then there's no way I'm going to be able to provide a solution with such quick notice. And so Philip had kind of relapsed into a moment of weak faith and Jesus knew it. And he called them out and look how Philip responded in verse seven. Philip answered him, 200 penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may take a little. Philip responded, well, like people with his personality respond. Cold hearted facts. Most process oriented people, they just tell you like it is. He simply told Jesus, we don't have enough. I mean, even if everyone just takes a little, we don't have enough. It can't be done. Now, you might say, oh, that's just his personality. Here's why I think this is inexcusable for Philip. Because he had already seen in John chapter 2 where Jesus turned water into wine. He had seen with his own eyes Jesus' ability to take a little and turn it into much. He knew better. In fact, here's how John MacArthur describes the scene. Philip was obsessed with mundane matters and therefore overwhelmed by the impossibility of the immediate problem. He knew too much arithmetic to be adventurous. The reality of the raw facts clouded his faith. He was so obsessed with this temporal predicament that he was oblivious to the possibilities that lay in Jesus' power. He was so enthralled with common sense calculations that he didn't see the opportunity the situation presented. He should have said, Lord, if you want to feed him, feed him. I'm just going to stand back and watch how you do it. I know you can do it, Lord. You made wine at Canaan. You fed your children, man in the wilderness. Do it. We will tell everyone to get in line and you just make the food. MacArthur said that would have been the right response. But Philip was convinced it simply couldn't be done. I wonder if there are any situations in your life right now where you're thinking it can't be done. Where you're walking more by sight than by faith, where you're more focused on the numbers that the calculator is reading than the promises of God's word. You're overcome with how impossible your situation looks and you've lost faith in God's power. Maybe you're thinking, I'll never be healed. Can't be done. 
My marriage will never be mended. It can't be done. I'll never even get married. It can't be done. I'll never get a better job. It can't be done. My children will never come back to God. It can't be done. I'll never have children. It can't be done. God will never be able to provide that need. It can't be done. I don't know the situation you find yourself in tonight, but I'm here to tell you that God is still in the miracle working business. Let me encourage you to resist the tendency to grow pessimistic about your, your situation. Resist the tendency to mope around in self-pity about your current condition. Resist the tendency to only focus on what can't be done. And friend, activate your faith to start believing in what God can do for you today. That's what Philip's buddy Andrew did. Look at verse 8 and 9. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, saith unto him, There's a lad here which hath five barley loaves and two small fishes. God give us the faith of Andrew. In our impossible situations, we offer to God what we can and trust him to do what we can't do. Yeah. So encouraging when, when Miss Amy Knutson FaceTimed my wife and I. Simona was there with her. Diane was there with her. And she FaceTimed us kind of late at night just to, to tell us face to face that she'd been diagnosed with breast cancer. And there were tears and there was sorrow and there was sadness. But I'm telling you, you could just hear the faith in her voice. You could hear the faith in her words and you could tell it wasn't like Christianese, right? It wasn't like, I'm really scared, but I know God's in control. It wasn't that. It was sincere, wasn't it, babe? Like sincere faith and positivity. And and she literally told me, I know God's going to take care of this. I just have a feeling that God's not done with me yet. And he has more for me here on earth. That's the kind of faith that Andrew had. A really scary, fearful, sometimes impossible situation. And you still have the faith to say, God can. Numbers don't show it. Feelings don't fill it. And history doesn't prove it. But God can. Weak faith limits your ability to believe in the power of God. Notice secondly, weak faith limits your ability to reach people for God. Be turning over to John chapter 12. Weak faith limits your ability to reach people for God. John chapter 12, we we covered this when we were talking about Andrew. Three verses here, verses 20 through 22. Look at this. And there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. The same came therefore to Philip, which was up at the city of Galilee and desired him saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Philip cometh and telleth Andrew. And again, Andrew and Philip tell Jesus. Philip eventually did the right thing. It just took him a while to analyze it all. See, what was happening is there was these non-Jews simply interested in meeting with Jesus. So they talked with Philip first, probably because they knew that he was the operations guy. He was the policies guy and he's the one that can set them up most efficiently for a meeting with Jesus. And it sounds like a, like a simple request, but it really paralyzed Philip because you know what he did? He instantly went to the handbook, I think. He instantly went to what Jesus had already taught them about his ministry to non-Jews. You can read Matthew's gospel, chapter 10, verse five and six. And here's what Jesus taught them. Put it up there on the screen. These 12, Jesus sent forth and commanded them saying, go not into the way of the Gentiles. And into any city of the Samaritans, enter ye not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So, so Philip was interpreting this to mean that Gentiles were not allowed to be introduced to Jesus. 
He didn't come to save them. But listen, that's not the proper interpretation when you look at Jesus' ministry at large. Jesus was simply identifying to the 12 here the normal priority of his ministry. He came to the Jew first, Paul would later write, and also to the Greek. The book of Romans says that. So it was a general principle, not like this ironclad law. Jesus had already proven that he was willing to pass through Samaria. You read John 4? He went and talked to the woman in Samaria, to the woman at the wells, what we call her. And he gave her the living water, changed her life, stuck around in Samaria for a couple extra days to evangelize her family. He was all about reaching non-Jews. But people like analytical Philip don't like general rules of thumb. They want every rule to be rigid and inflexible. There, there was no protocol in, in Philip's ministry manual for introducing Greeks to Jesus, so it must be off limits. So instead of having daring faith that believed that Jesus could save anyone at any time, Philip suffered from analysis paralysis, and he had to go discuss it with Andrew first. Listen, this isn't what Philip was like when he first got saved. When he first got saved... He went to Nathaniel right away. And even though Nathaniel was really analytical and really skeptical, it didn't faze Philip. Philip said, dude, stop asking questions. Just come and see. But over time, his analytical personality weakened his adventurous faith when it came to evangelism. I wonder tonight if there's anybody in your life that you've declared unsalvageable. Thought there's no way that person is ever going to get saved. There's no way that person's ever going to come to church. There's no way that person's ever going to come back to church. And instead of having daring faith that believes in God's saving power, you're walking by sight and you're failing to believe that person could get saved at any time with the power of God. Understand this church is full of people that by human standards were part of the unsalvageable category. Like Kent McCarter, who said he'll never come to Fellowship Baptist Church. And he's a deacon today. And Victor Garcia, who's back there, who I saw at Daylight Donuts this morning because he eats like a champ. <laughs> was addicted to that awful drug, meth. And he walked the aisle with his wife and got saved. And Wesley Payton, who his wife couldn't get to come. Because he was skeptical of all things church. And here he is, a treasurer. Amen. And Mike Dominguez, who was stooped in a godless lifestyle and loved his alcohol. But he walked an aisle at Fellowship Baptist Church and got saved. Amen. And Alex and Maricela Perez, who were trusting in Catholicism and attached to it because of their family ties. And here they are in Fellowship Baptist Church through the bus ministry. And Gary Dunham, whose upbringing and past would absolutely shock you as compared to the man he has become today. That's just to mention a few. And I didn't even touch on the people in the Bible like Rahab the prostitute and Ruth the idolater and Paul the murderer and Mary Magdalene the demon-possessed woman. God has always specialized in saving the kind of people that we in our weak faith think could never get saved. God help us. To have the kind of faith that sees anybody and everybody as a soul that Jesus Christ has died for. And a life that God, with His power and with His touch, can transform. I want to see more Victor Garcias walk the aisle of Fellowship Baptist Church. But they won't if we don't believe they will.
God can save anybody at any time. Weak faith limits your ability to believe in the power of God. It limits your ability to reach people for God. One more. It limits your ability to trust the word of God. Be turning to John 14, just a page or two over in your Bible. This is the famous passage where Jesus tells his disciples, I've got to go away, but I'm going away to prepare a place for you. And then he promises them, if I'm going away to prepare a place for you, which is talking about heaven, he said, I'll come back and get you and take you there. And then Thomas, that's who we call the doubting disciple. He asked Jesus, well, how do we get there then? What's, what's the way? And Jesus speaks those famous words in verse six. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Then look what he says in John 14, seven, to clarify that indeed the disciples are part of the Father. If ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also. And from henceforth ye know him and have seen him. So in essence, he was telling these really scared disciples that, that the way to heaven is through Jesus. That's how you get to the Father. And they said, don't worry about it. You know the Father. Like you're secure, you're saved. And you know the Father because you know the Son. We're one. At this point, it was Philip that spoke up. Look what he said in verse 8. Philip saith unto the Lord, unto him, Lord, show us the Father. And it sufficeth us. Now, if I was Jesus, I'd be real perturbed. Because Jesus was very, very, very clear in verse 6 or 7. But now Philip wants extra proof. See, we call Thomas the doubting disciple. I think it ought to be doubting Philip, too. He gets off clean on this. But, but he asked this question on the heels of such a clear word from God. He had already seen for several years now, Jesus heal diseases. And deformities of all kinds. He had spent intimate time with Jesus day in and day out for several years. How could someone like Philip, who didn't have a hard time believing in Jesus in John chapter 1, now have a hard time trusting what he said in John 14? Jesus rebuked him in verse 9. How have I been so long time with you? And yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that has seen me has seen the Father. How sayest thou then, show us the Father? Philip's analytical brain was overthinking Jesus' words and it limited his faith. And we can do the same thing, can't we? Are you with me? Would you follow me to the close of the message? God has given us his word, but sometimes if we don't have every detail, we can't make sense of everything in our analytical minds. We have a hard time trusting that it's true. So we just had our missions conference. Three weeks or so ago, I, I preached out of Philippians chapter 4, and I, and I told you how you could claim the promise of Philippians 4.19, my God shall supply all of our needs. You can claim that if you give. And if you give sacrificially, like the Philippian church did, in a way that's pleasing to God, then you can trust that if, if your giving created a space in, in, in your life or need in your life, God will fill that space. He'll fill that need with this provision. You can trust that. But maybe in your mind, you're like, man, I still just can't compute. That doesn't compute with me. That's not how I've been taught my whole life to handle money. My mom and dad taught me that I plan and, 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 and a budget. And, and it's, it's got to make sense on paper or I'm being irresponsible. And my finance teacher in college 
told me, don't be duped by them preachers that are trying to get your money. And, and it just, it just isn't really all making sense. But, but maybe you, you, you stepped out by faith anyway and started participating in a sacrificial way in faith promise missions. I mean, a lot of you must have. $340,000 doesn't fall off a tree. And so you stepped out on faith, but maybe after doing that already, your analytical mind's like, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. Well, I got a story for you that's already tied in and related to a faith promise missions commitment of this year. And we're like three days in. Come here, Wes. Sorry, I didn't, I didn't even tell you you're going to do this. I'm really sorry. I'm really not sorry. I love this guy. Turn this mic on. Tell him the story you told me in the foyer. Um, it's, it's real short. It's real simple, but it's, it's really neat. So we had talked. I talked to Kara about what we were going to do for this next year's faith promise. And we were laying in bed and I, she said, well, what do you think? And I said, well, I think this much. She said, no, I think we need to do a little bit more. And I'm thinking in my heart, there's no way. There's no way I can pull that extra off. And she said, well, she said, I'll tell you what. She said, my extra money from my second job, we'll just take all of that and that'll go to Faith Promise. She was saving this up for a vacation this year. I said, you do realize you won't get a vacation then. It's, we're giving it to the Lord. She says, yep, I sure do. This happened Friday. Saturday, I got a call from a guy I've been waiting a year and a half on to sell a tractor to. And he said, I will be up there after church on Sunday to pick up the tractor. So the money from that now paid for her vacation. It created a need, and Lord filled that need. Come on, baby. (laughs) Good job, man. Thank you. Isn't that amazing? It, It sold the afternoon after he put the number on a card. Maybe just, maybe just so he could get behind a pulpit three days after you made your commitment. And you're trying to figure out how am I going to do this or go there or how's this need going to be met? God will supply your need. Don't overanalyze your commitment and obedience to God in a way that discourages you or puts you in analysis paralysis. God will always show up. He will always show up. Hebrews 13, 5 is a clear word from God. But my God will never leave me nor forsake thee. Don't overanalyze that. Don't say that verse is wrong because of the way I feel right now. If you're saved, it's not wrong. Because where you go, God goes. God's in you. Whether you feel like it or not right now, whether you can see it or not right now, God is with you. Isn't he, Brother Tom? You felt that. You told me that in the hospital. When, when, when I talked to your wife, she told me that. Then you text me. And Brother Rick, you, you said Jesus was with you. You could feel the prayers. He is. He is. Romans 12 says what you ought to do if you're offended by a brother or sister in Christ. You ought to overcome their evil with your good. You ought to do good to them in spite of them doing evil to you. And, and the, the, the principle, and I could, I could go on, but I won't. It basically is for this reason. Because maybe the Holy Spirit will use your kindness and your unconditional love towards them to convict them of what they did towards you. And you're like, nope, nope. The only way I can get my point across is if I blow them up on Facebook. The only way I can get my point across is if I return evil for evil because then they will actually get a little bit of glimpse of what they took me through. 
There's no way that, that I can trust God's word and how to respond to an offense in the way that God wants me to. I will not turn the other cheek. I will not overcome evil with good. That's not how my dad taught me. And you're not trusting God's word. Proverbs 18, 24. A man that hath friends must show himself friendly. I can't figure out why I can't connect with anybody. Well, God's word says you connect with people when you try to connect with people. You find friends when you're friendly. Well, I just I don't see that happening. I don't see how that's going to work. That's just never worked in my life. Well, you're not working it. That's like saying the gym's not working for you and you're not going. Because if that is, that's a, a principle of God's word, I found in my life and everybody that gives it an honest shot in spite of their personality weaknesses, that does work. Now, being friendly might, might, might be practiced different by everyone according to their own personality. But friendliness, friendliness brings about friends. It just does. If you're likable, people will like you. If you're open, people will come. If you approach and you approach again, and you approach again, eventually you will find a friend. Trust God's word. All Peter needed the day that he was in the boat was one word from Jesus. Come. He didn't need Jesus to explain to him, well, when you, when you take about your third step on the waves, you're going to get a little bit shaky, but you, ju you just keep your foot flat. Don't inhale when you take the next step. Exhale. He didn't, he, didn't need, he didn't need to see what angle his knee needed to be at. Jesus is going to hold me up. He just, all he said, was, hey, tell me to come. And Jesus said, okay, come. And he obeyed God on one word. And we've got the full canon of scripture. And yet we still get stuck in analysis paralysis. We got a more clear word than Abraham had. When God said, just move your family. Where? Just move your family. Take your only son, Isaac, to the top of a mountain and kill him. What? No details. And we get, we get the end of the story. But yet we still struggle to surrender. Analysis, paralysis. It limits our adventurous faith, doesn't it? What do you need to trust God for today that you're having a hard time trusting him for because you just can't make sense of it right now? You can't connect the dots. You need to see it and then you'll be sufficed. Well, Jesus rebuked Philip for that. Jesus says this, you believe me, then I'll show you. But yet we're like, show me, then I'll believe. Nope. If Jesus says come, you better come. Jesus says go, you better go. If he says give, you better give. If he says serve, you better serve. Weak faith is limiting. It limits our ability to believe in the power of God. Limits our ability to reach people for God. It limits our ability to trust in the word of God. I wonder how many Phillips we have in the chairs tonight. You don't have to just be an analytical personality to overanalyze. That can happen to all of us. And maybe tonight you just need to respond to an invitation by saying, God, get my eyes on you again. Get my eyes off the numbers. Get my eyes off the difficulties. Get my eyes off the scenarios, the situations, the circumstances, the impossibilities. Get my eyes on the fact that you can still do it today. You just need to come and just be honest with God. I'm struggling. Give me faith. Give me faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please 
God. You agree with the Bible tonight? Stand to your feet. Let's pray together.